Well, like Rod said, he's off to cook the barbecue. You might be expecting me to say, open your Bibles to Mark 14. So far, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark here on Sunday mornings, and we're nearly done. We're almost at the end. But we'll be pausing Mark for a few weeks to talk about worship, specifically music worship. As you can tell, if you've been around by way of circumstances, we've made a bit of a music transition. Our beloved piano player, Barbara, had to take a leave of absence due to health concerns. And that left us without any musicians in the church. And normally when this happened in the past, I'd invite up some friends from other churches who'd come and help us out with music. But by God's providence, literally the same time that Barbara was having her health concerns, uh, we got to know Kevin, and he's been able to serve us for a couple months now, and we're thankful for that. But Kevin, however, like our other guest worship leaders in the past, leads with acoustic guitar, not piano. And he has more of a contemporary style rather than the traditional style. That being said, I will mention that Barbara used to play a lot of contemporary songs on the piano, and Kevin plays a lot of old classic hymns on the guitar, so we've got a nice mix going on. But still, especially for those who've been at this church for a long time, or who come from a traditional church music background, the little style change we've had might be new for you. Now, I don't see this church having huge conflicts or issues over music style, but this issue of music worship is an extremely significant shepherding one. It's been in my heart for a while, so I want to start talking to you about it this morning. This is an issue where you always have to be careful. Anytime you introduce a newer music style to a church, you have to be careful because, especially in the past 50 years, this has to be the number one reason for church splits. Now, I bet you know what I'm talking about. This whole phenomena has its own name now called the worship wars. Started back in the 1960s and the 70s, the church saw the introduction of contemporary Christian music. It wasn't long before churches started to adapt to this new style. Traditional churches would be piano or organ-led. They'd sing the classic hymns. But most of these churches were totally caught off guard by the introduction of guitar, drums, keyboards into a worship service. To them, and at that time especially, that style of music was associated with worldliness and immorality, and so they believed it had no place in the church. Others, though, usually the younger generation, really liked this new style of music and made a connection with them. They felt it facilitated greater worship, and so the seeds of division were sown. And without strong shepherding, that's exactly what happened, division. Hence, over the past 50 years, there's been an accelerated splintering of the Protestant church. Many local churches and even entire denominations have splintered over this issue of music. They've had the same doctrine. They believe everything the same, but they differ so greatly on music style that they break up in part ways. Now, granted, this is something you have to evaluate on a case-by-case basis, but in general, the splintering of the church is a terrible thing. Jesus himself said that the world would come to know that he is true by the unity of his church. John 17. The oneness of the church is indeed supernatural. In the church, you have all these different people coming from diverse backgrounds, and otherwise they should have nothing to do with one another. But because of Christ, they're one. They're they're one body. That unity is special, and it shows the world that Jesus is true. But when the church splits, which over things that often boil down to personal preference, it gives the church a black eye, and it really hinders our outreach to the lost. Needless to say, how the church has handled the emergence of contemporary music, which every generation has contemporary music, but how the church has handled it hasn't been that good, and the outcome 
over the past 50 years has not been that good either. Some churches more recently have tried to avoid the issue altogether by just trying to please everyone and get around the problem by offering different services for people with different tastes. I know of a Los Angeles megachurch that has different services tailored to the personal tastes of their different demographics. So they have four services. They have a a rock service, a gospel service, an alternative service, and a traditional service. They try and cater to everyone's personal tastes, and many churches are doing this now in an effort to hold on to unity. And on one hand, I do appreciate the effort to try and hold on to unity within a church. We, We can appreciate that. But in a lot of these cases, they're just church splits in disguise. Factions form where people in the same church split along the lines of which service they attend. And oftentimes there's little cross-pollination between the different services. They become little churches within a church. Just leads us to believe there's got to be a better way, right? There has to be a better way to understand, to deal with these worship wars, to respond. There's got to be a better solution to this problem. The problem is real. There really are different people in the church with strong opposing beliefs and preferences about music. And naturally, people will divide over things like that, naturally, in the flesh. But how can this be prevented? What should be done about these worship wars? What's the right biblical response? I realize in a way, we here at our little local church, we're faced with these issues today, aren't we? We've made a, a small move from a traditional piano style, just by circumstance with our, our uh, piano lady being sick, to a more contemporary guitar style. Now again, I don't see us having huge problems like other churches face over this issue. But nonetheless, we still need to address it. And I want to help you to start to think through these issues uh, this morning in a biblical manner. And that's really the key in a biblical manner. Too many churches go wrong with this discussion when they say, well, this is what we've always done. Or, this is what I really like, instead of, this is what the Bible says or doesn't say. And you see, that's where they go wrong, the whole issue. But if you really believe the Bible is the living and active Word of God, that it holds authoritative truth for all of the Christian life, it's our guide, especially when we're talking about worship, then you're going to... Put aside your traditions, your preferences, and just let's search the scriptures. What does God say about this whole issue of worship, music, worship, style? That's a measure of a true church, a mature church that will submit to the word above all things. You can have your preferences, your tastes, your traditions. In a measure, that's fine, but you will never elevate them above what God's word actually says. And that's a big difference. We will submit ourselves and our preferences to the word and even to one another. And that's how the church emerges from the worship wars, unscathed, unified, and even stronger. So what do you think we're going to be doing over the next couple of sermons? We're going to be considering the issue of worship music style through the lens of God's word. Let's let the Bible authoritatively speak on these matters, giving us clear instructions and guidelines to sort this issue out so we can come away with a biblical perspective and a biblical practice. That's, that's what we are concerned about here at this church. And that's my goal for this short little series on worship, on true worship. Now to get things started for today, though, I want to first begin by more precisely diagnosing the problem within churches. 
trying to get to the core of this divisiveness. Why are churches splitting and having internal issues over something like music, music style, instruments? Why, why is that even a thing? What is the root of the separation people feel so strongly about music? Where, where's it coming from? I want us to find out, and then I want us to put these reasons through a biblical lens, a biblical filter, to see what we can make of them and how we should respond. In the future, we'll deal with issues like truth versus experience in worship, and even instruments and music itself. But for today, I want to make sure we really understand why this problem even exists. I want to make sure you have a biblical framework for understanding these worship wars and rightly responding. I want you basically to get it right so that you can be a a force that contributes to the unity of the church amidst different music as opposed to demolishing the unity of the church. So with that said, let's begin here. Number one, I'll give you a little outline just to follow along. Number one, diagnosing the worship wars. Number one, diagnosing the worship wars. Why are churches struggling and splitting over the issue of music style? What's causing so much disruption? Why do traditional churches have such a hard time accepting guitar-led contemporary music? And why do contemporary churches have such a hard time embracing the classic hymns of the faith? Just to name a few issues. Well, when you reflect on recent church history over the past 50 years, it becomes evident that the worship wars have been spurred on by two major factors, tradition and preference. Church tradition and personal preference. If churches would be perfectly honest with themselves, they would admit that's really the nature of the source of their division. Now, sure, some both sides will try and attach a few Bible verses to their arguments. You know, but let's be real. The worship wars, they're not really fought over theology. It's not really a theological divide. As we will see in a future study, the New Testament is completely silent on the issue of music style and instruments used to worship God. And some will go to the Old Testament, try and argue their case, but even there you've got to be honest. Those verses are for national Israel. not They're not mandates for the church. In all, there's just not much for the church to go by concerning how to musically worship God. There are a few biblical considerations to make for sure, and we will be getting there most definitely, but... If most people were just being honest honest with themselves, they would admit that the real source of their division, their rub with others, it really boils down to either their church tradition or their personal preferences. It's not really what the Bible says. Now, that being the case, that's just reality. Let's spend some time exploring these two densely populated battle lines in the worship wars. First, you've got the issue of church tradition. Church tradition. All churches have traditions, and that's not necessarily bad or wrong. At the end of the day, what is tradition other than just doing things in a particular way? For example, how does your church take up the offering? Do you pass out plates, or do you use the little bags? Or do you have a drop box in the back? Or do you do online donations? You know, Whatever you do, that's your tradition. That's not really a problem. It's, it's not unbiblical. It's just non-biblical. Meaning it doesn't go against scripture, but it also is not from scripture. It's not necessarily right or wrong. It it, it can be acceptable as long as it's not overturning the word. There's a place for tradition. But one problem of traditions is that they can easily become ingrained in people. 
especially if a person is raised a certain way, these traditions become not just how they do things, but how things ought to be done. And people can get to the point where if you don't do things the way they do, they will look down on you. They will even say you're in the wrong, you're in sin. And that's when traditions become quite wrong themselves, even evil. That's when traditions turn bad. And that happens with a lot of churches when it comes to the issue of music style. You have people raised in a certain way, and now they believe this is how the Lord must be worshipped. There's no other acceptable way. This is how we do it. This is how it ought to be done. For instance, there are some who grew up singing worship songs led by a pipe organ. Very orthodox churches. That's how they were raised. That's how they sang praise to God. Now they just have this feeling, this is how the Lord is supposed to be worshipped. This is how it's supposed to be done, right? Any other instrument feels less worthy. Piano, guitar, nothing suffices. Even an electronic organ like we have wouldn't cut it. It's got to be that pipe organ. Nothing matches the majesty of, of the pipe organ. Look, it's okay for a local church to worship the Lord with a pipe organ. But how do they view other churches? Or if that church wants to introduce an additional style, what would happen? Some, because of their ingrained tradition, would leave that church or even try and split that church. Even though that tradition doesn't come from Scripture, they view all of their music as worldly and inferior. They find a way to justify defending their traditional style as the only one acceptable to God. And some people will take their traditional styles to their local church's grave. Tradition, it's a very powerful thing. And it is the first source of division among Christians in these worship wars. The second source of division is personal preference. Personal preference. This is especially a problem today in our postmodern consumer-driven culture. We have an entire generation trained by society to believe that they are all that matters. It's all that they want. That's all that matters. It's all about having it your way. The self is the driving force behind all of our commerce, really all of our society. Now, in some ways, that's not wrong. We are individuals. It's okay to have personal preferences most of the time. For example, when it comes to food, now we have more and more restaurants like Subway or Chipotle where it's all about like just what you want. There's no menu. Just order what you want. You fully customize it. There's no, there's no wrong way. It's all about what you want. And when it comes to food, that's a great thing. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not unbiblical. That's, it's okay to have unique individual tastes. But what happens when that attitude or that mentality is brought into the church? Well, then you're going to have problems because in the church... Not everyone can have it their way. In fact, it's not about you and your way. It's about God and His ways. And the church really only works when we come together and we put aside our personal preferences. But our culture is the exact opposite right now and naturally the church is going to struggle. Many come to church looking to have their personalized needs met. They want this, this, and this. And if they don't find it, they're going to leave Go find somewhere else that pleases them. They shop around. Or some people become so dissatisfied that they leave all churches, they just start their own little group. They really have it their own way, but oftentimes those people still aren't satisfied. This problem is exacerbated by many churches which are so desperate for young people 
they start to cater to this personal preference mentality. They find all the latest tastes and trends of younger people and they import them into the church to try and attract them. But by this, they're just reinforcing the idea that church is all about them. And as the saying goes, easy come, easy go. What happens when that church falls out of style? Well, then all those people who came for that reason, they will leave just as fast. This is probably why we have such a large generation of church hoppers today, right? Either church changes or their personal preferences change. And either way, when that happens, it's time to to keep shopping, time to move on, find something else that pleases them because it's all about them. And probably the number one issue behind so many people church hopping is what? Music. It's the music. It's not the preaching. It's not the doctrine. It's not the leadership. It's not the fellowship. All the things the Bible says actually matter the most. It's the music style, which the Bible doesn't even address. And for so many, reasons, for so many people, music, that's their main reason for liking a church or not liking a church, for choosing a church or leaving a church. It's, it's the music. Music style should be the last thing you consider in a church, biblically speaking. But that's just, that's where our culture is. And for, for most times, it puts the church in a lose-lose situation. If the church ever changes their musical style, they risk alienating the traditional people. But if the church doesn't change their music, musical style, they risk losing all those personal preference people. The church is at a loss and suffers even more because some people take their traditions and their preferences very seriously. And they will happily split or divide a church over them. So you can see why this issue has been labeled the worship wars. Now thankfully, again, I do not foresee us having these serious types of problems here at this church, any drastic fallout, especially since the changes we've introduced are relatively minor and and done right, I believe. But still, this issue, it's worth exposing. Something we need to talk about. We need to get a biblical perspective on this issue, right? That's what we're going to do. So far, we've diagnosed the real source behind these worship wars. If people were being just really honest, most times they would admit that their division, their rub, their, their grief with other styles, it's not really over scripture. It's over tradition or preference. But is this okay? Are these legitimate sources of division and discord? What does the Bible say about the role, tradition, and preference should play in our church? Well, let's find out. Number two, the biblical role of tradition. Let's move on. Let's start talking about these. Number two, the biblical role of tradition. What does the Bible say about the role tradition should play in the church? Let's get some input from the Word now. Turn to Matthew 15. Like I said, we'll come back to Mark in a little bit, in a few weeks, but for now, we'll be hopping around. So turn to Matthew chapter 15. This is a defining text on the role tradition should play and should not play among God's people. Of course, by tradition, we're talking man-made tradition. We're not talking about the ordinances the Lord gave to the church, like Lord's Supper or baptism. No, we're talking about man-made traditions that are not directly from the Bible. 
Man-made traditions, though, they're not necessarily wrong. They can be used to build on God's Word, to remember God, to exalt God. For example, Perfect Sunday, we have a tradition today. Every Sunday from now on, from on the, the Sunday after Thanksgiving, we have a little tradition of hosting a, a big barbecue potluck. We'll do it after church today. It's just a little way for this church, given the church's history, to remember God, to remember his deliverance, to thank him. And that's great. That's fine. But nonetheless, you always have to be wary of traditions taking precedence over God's word. When traditions are used to overturn, supersede, or get around God's word, then you've got a real problem. That's what the Jews did. As you know, we actually looked at the parallel of this passage when we studied Mark, so you know this. But Jewish religion, by the time of Jesus, had been significantly modified from Old Testament times. The Jews took all those commands that God actually gave and they they added to them. They, They built some traditions around God's word. They had good intentions. They said, we need some like new laws to keep us from violating God's law or to help us obey. For example, in the law, God said, that you should not travel on the Sabbath. But God never said, like, how far can you go or not go? So the Jews came along and they developed some traditions, like, just to play it safe, we're going to make a new law that says on Sabbath you can only travel 2,000 cubits, which is like, it's like 0.6 miles. And that became the new law. And the intention was good. The intention was to keep people from violating God's law. But what happened if, you know, sometime down in the future... There's an emergency and you really, you needed to travel 0.7 miles on Sabbath. What would happen? Well, the community would condemn you as a sinner, a transgressor of the law. And in this way, man-made tradition basically came to replace and supersede God's actual word. That's how false religions are born. And Jesus had a few harsh words to say about that type of tradition in Matthew 15. He starts in verse 1. It says, then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Notice their concern, they obviously saw Jesus and and his disciples eat. Their concern is not that they violated God's actual law, but the tradition of the elders, their oral law, their traditions. God's law said nothing about common people, washing their hands before eating bread. There's only a little verse about the Levites before temple service, but God's law said nothing about this. But their traditions did. To them, it's how things were done. Like before you eat, you have to ceremonially wash. It's how things were done. It's how things ought to be done. It was their tradition. Jesus violated their tradition. But Jesus has something to say, verse 3. And he answered and said to them, Why do you, yourselves, transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition. You'll notice Jesus doesn't outright condemn all tradition. But certainly, when you get to the point of violating God's commands for the sake of your tradition, then you're in trouble. Then you're in the wrong. Then you're in sin. And Jesus next gives an example of how the Jews, they actually used their tradition to transgress, to violate God's actual word. Verse 4, he says, For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, 
Whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. He is not to honor his father or mother. And by this, you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. So he gives us command, honor your parents. That's, that's straight from God. It's one of the Ten Commandments, honor your parents. And God takes it so seriously that to dishonor your parents came with the death penalty. So this is a, a very important command to God in the Old Testament law. This included taking care of your parents as they age. But Jewish tradition formed a loophole to that command. Let's say you had the son and he was rich. He didn't really want to spend all of his money taking care of his aging parents. Well, Jewish tradition came along and said that if you declared, you vowed that your money was korban or given to God, that that money now is like set aside. You could not use that for any purpose but to serve the Lord. And this loophole, basically you could say, hey, parents, sorry, I'd love to take care of you, but I just vowed all my money to the Lord only, so I actually have nothing left for you. That way, you keep your money, you stay rich. In the end, you still use it for whatever you want, but you have a reason to tell your parents, sorry, you're out of luck. But do you see how through this tradition, they were basically overturning God's actual word? This is a great evil in God's eyes. And so he says in verse 6, you've invalidated God's word. And God doesn't take that lightly. They were hypocrites because they were doing this not from any sort of righteousness, but from selfishness and from sin. And Jesus calls them out, verse 7. He said, you hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. In vain do they worship me teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. It's pretty clear. And from Jesus himself, we get some very powerful teaching on the role tradition should and should not play among God's people. And we today need to be very careful not to repeat the errors of the Jews. It's okay to have some tradition, but you can never let them overturn God's actual word. You can never elevate the precepts of men, your traditions, to the level of the doctrine of God. No, there's a clear distinction there. And you can never use your traditions to justify going against God's word in any way. Now you get all that. Here's the thing. Think about now music styles and the instruments we use in church today in the 21st century church. None of them are biblical. I'm not saying they're unbiblical, I'm just saying they're non-biblical, meaning they, they don't come from the Bible. They don't go against the Bible, they're fine, we'll, we'll get into all this a lot later, but they're not found in the Bible. And take the piano. Did you know the piano was invented in 1700 AD? It's not a biblical instrument. Also, take the hymns we sing. Yeah, it's true, Ephesians 5 says, speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Key verse, we'll get there. And so you see the connection of hymns, and so we sing the hymns. But face it, the hymns we sing today, our hymn book, Jesus sang none of those. None of those were around back then. Those aren't those hymns. And in fact, even the hymn style is a product of the Middle Ages and beyond. That's not the, the, even the style of hymns they sang in the first century. Also, you could argue there were stringed instruments in the Old Testament. And that's true, but still nothing like the modern guitar. You just have to face it. 
our style today, all of our styles, and pretty much all of our instruments, except a few exceptions, they don't come from the Bible. That doesn't mean they're wrong. And we're going to study the history of music in the church later on, but in short, the early church, they used no music. There was no music in the first church. They just used their voices. That's it. Only their voices. And so if you're really concerned about going back to the pure biblical example, you're basing it on early church tradition, even at that, and then you'd be singing everything a cappella. The point I'm making, though, if you praise God with instruments today, it's okay, but you're dealing with tradition, man-made tradition. Yeah, you can point to some Old Testament examples, but again, those instructions are for national Israel. Those are not mandates for the church. So it boils down to what we do today, what all churches do today, pretty much it's tradition. It's an issue of tradition. It's just what we do. It's how we worship the Lord. Again, it doesn't make it wrong. Music traditions are okay. But it does mean you can't make them dogmatic. You can't teach the precepts of men as doctrine. You can't argue that the piano or the organ or the guitar are God's holy ordained instruments. That you can't worship God any other way. You can't say that only songs from our hymn book are acceptable in worship. Most of which came after 1800, by the way. You can't say concerning your music style, this is how it's supposed to be done. This is the only way God can legitimately be worshipped. You can't say that. And for sure, here's a huge point, for sure you cannot disfellowship with other Christians over something like music style or instruments. Music style is not doctrine. But you know what it is. Let me read you some pure church doctrine. Just listen along, Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. Ephesians 4, 1 says, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. Just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Listen, having music tradition is okay. But when you split with other Christians over music style, over music tradition, you're basically saying no to Ephesians 4. You're basically saying no to being humble, no to showing tolerance and love, no to preserving the unity of the Spirit, no to one body. People literally split. It's like they're saying, no, we should have two bodies. Like when you're dealing with gospel doctrine, like salvation by faith, then yes, we have to split. If there's false teaching, if there's false gospels, we have to split. We have to be separate. Yes, there's a, there is a biblical place for that. But when you're dealing with music styles and instruments, which for many, it just boils down to tradition, and you use those traditions to justify dividing from other believers, I can't see how that's not doing what the Pharisees did. You become just as guilty as they were and that you transgress the actual commands of God for the sake of your tradition. So beware that trap. It's the trap of tradition. First, rightly understand the biblical role tradition should play and should not play in our Christian lives and the church. 
There is room for tradition that exalts God. But if your tradition leads you to overturn, supersede, or transgress God's actual word in any way, then the problem is with you and your traditions. Specifically concerning music, ask yourself this question. If you find yourself willing to leave a church over its music style, what reason would you give? Would you say, well, this is not what I'm accustomed to. This isn't how I grew up. It's not what I'm used to doing. This is not how worship ought to be done. If that's your reasoning, well, then you most likely have already fallen into the trap of man-made tradition. Just beware this trap. Watch out for the trap of tradition. This is not the only trap, though. There is a second one. Let's turn our attention to this now. The other trap is that of personal preference. Personal preference. So point number three, if you're following along in the outline, let's move on now to the biblical role of preference. The biblical role of preference. So preferences like traditions, they're not wrong in and of themselves. Especially on an individual level, it's perfectly okay to have personal preferences. Of course, we're not talking about sin issues. You can't justify sin and saying it's your personal preference. But otherwise, you can have all the preferences you want. You're free to have your personal tastes. Do you want a red car, a white car, a silver car? It's just up to you. It's not a biblical issue. Knock yourself out. You're an individual. You're going to have individual tastes, and, and that's okay. You don't all have to be the same. And on an individual level, this extends to music style as well. What music do you listen to in your car right now, for instance? Well, it's going to be determined by your own personal preference. Rock, country, jazz, classical, whatever. And it's fine on an individual level, on your own, so long as you're not sinning, knock yourself out with your personal preferences. It's, it's fine. But what about at a corporate level? What role should personal preference play in a local church assembly? And the answer here is basically no role. No role. Why not? Because church is not about you and your preferences. It's about God and his preferences. The things we do when we gather are determined and ordered by God, not man. And that most definitely applies to worship. Worship is deadly serious to God. You know that? It's not casual. There's no such thing as casual worship to God. God is holy and jealous for his own glory. He made us to delight in him and to worship him. And it's not something you play around with. If you recall the Old Testament, Uzzah learned that the hard way. Remember, Israel's worship involved the Ark of the Covenant, which was a way of representing God's holy presence in their midst. Well, one time David was transporting the ark to Jerusalem and God commanded in his law, if you're ever going to move the ark, you have to transport it on poles and it has to be carried by the sons of Kohath. But by David's time, the ark had been placed on this nice cart with wheels led by oxen. I mean, so much more convenient, so much easier. I mean, talk about preference. You really want to carry around the heavy ark, just put it on this like chariot, you're good to go. But God was not pleased by this. He did not accept their change. He wasn't happy about their new preference. No, but instead, God determines how he is to be worshipped and how he is to be approached. 
And you don't get to change that. Later on, because it was on this cart, the ark almost fell off. And Uzzah reached out his hand to, to protect it, to keep it from falling. That was also something God forbid. Nobody touches the ark. And to God, enough was enough. Second Samuel chapter 6, verse 7 says, Because of that, God struck him down because of his irreverence. God made a lasting example out of him, and it gives us a fitting application. You don't go against God's word, especially in worship. And you don't import your preferences or conveniences because it's not about you. It's about God, a fiercely holy God, who definitely cares about how he is approached and how he is worshipped. Worship today, it's still not about you. It's about God and his will. Now, to be fair, what if God's will in worship is not always so clearly described, like with music style? Well, here there actually is room for freedom of different expressions of worship. We're going to talk a lot about that later. That, that's not a problem. But you still need to approach such worship with the same attitude that it's, it's not for you. It's not about you. It's about God. So even if your personal preferences are not met, you can still worship. Do you get that point? Even if your personal preferences are not met, you can still worship. Do you realize God created you for his glory? Isaiah 43, verse 7, God himself equates those who are called by his name as those whom he created for his glory. God created you for his glory and he saved you for his glory. In Ephesians 1, three times Paul talks about how God saved us. And three times he tells us why God saved us. And each time it's the same. Why did God save us? For the praise of his glory. For the praise of his glory. For the praise of his glory. God created you for his glory. He saved you for his glory. And this glory is chiefly expressed through praise. Hebrews 13, 15. It says, through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. God delights in the praises of his people. He wants to hear your praise. He seeks your worship. Do you know that? But he seeks your worship on his terms. And that's exactly, that's just what Jesus said. I'm not making that up. That's Jesus in John 4. John 4, 23 Jesus said, an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. I'm saving that passage for a later sermon, but the point is God seeks true worshipers and true worship is defined by God. He says what true worship is, spirit and truth. Your personal preferences, though, they don't enter into that verse, that equation. Because the externals of worship, they don't matter all that much. What matters most to God in worship is your heart, the heart behind your worship. True worship originates from the heart. It's a redeemed heart that loves God, that's been broken over sin, but delivered by Jesus. We're talking a humble heart that now wants nothing more but to see the Lord's name lifted up. We'll be studying the heart of worship a whole lot more later on. But if you get this heart right, the external form of your praise 
it'll sort itself out. If you get the heart right, the externals will all fall into place. But God, what matters by far most to him is the heart of worship. You approach him with a genuine, true heart of worship that's focused on him. But too many today come to God and come to church with hearts of pride and self-concern. They secretly desire to see themselves exalted. They wonder, even subconsciously, what, what can I get out of this? Their minds are not focused on serving others or lifting up God, but, but on themselves. And when it comes to music worship, it's, it's about what pleases their ear. They better get the experience they want or they're going to leave and they're going to find it somewhere else. Have you ever come to church with such a hard attitude? Have you fallen into the trap of personal preference where church becomes less about God and more about you and your, your tastes being met? I'm so thankful that by God's providence, he worked this out today. I didn't plan this, just totally God's providence. That of all days, it's so fitting. This is our first Sunday with a brand new carpet color. Did you see it? It's new. This is today. This was last week. The old carpet's up here on the stage. It's old, dingy color, 30 years old. But they installed new carpet this week. And tell me, do you like the carpet? Does it suit you? Do you like the color? What if you don't? What if you hate the color of our new carpet? What are you going to do? Would you find that a good reason to leave the church? There's no better illustration, right? That's just it's telling itself. And believe it or not, some, some years ago, a megachurch in Texas split over the issue of the carpet color in the foyer. And you look, you don't have to like a church's carpet color. You, you don't have to like it. It may not suit your personal preference, that's, that's fine, but if you're the type that would leave the church over something like that, or become disgruntled or divide, then you betray a completely self-centered approach to church. Pride and self still reign in your heart, and such attitudes, they're completely antithetical to true worship. Now, just take that and apply it to music style, because we're basically talking about the same thing. For a lot of people, it just boils down to their personal preference. And so if you would leave or divide from a church because the music doesn't float your boat, then your heart is way off, which means your worship, ironically, is way off. When a selfish, preferential heart attitude pervades the church, then the church is in real trouble. And ironically, today, So many churches are shooting themselves in the foot without even knowing it because they are catering to the consumerism and self-centeredness of our culture. Churches are even advertising this have-it-your-way mentality in order to attract the, the young people. But are you starting to see the problem with that? If you attract someone to your church by personal preference issues, fads, trends, Be prepared to lose those people if you ever change or if their tastes ever change. And that they will. And they will. And this is most certainly the case when it comes to music worship. If you design the music worship of God around the tastes and preferences of people, your church will last as long as the tastes and preferences of your people. But what happens when a person's tastes change? They have no more reason to be there. They'll move on. 
Or what happens when you, know, you breed this mentality that it's all about me and my tastes, my preferences. You breed that mentality. What happens for a person when just something else comes up that's more pleasing to them? Like you know, fishing or going on a shopping trip with friends or football. Some Christians are so self-consumed that their commitment to God and the body on Sunday morning is about as strong as an uncooked piece of spaghetti. Just about anything will break it. I heard a local pastor recently talk about his church was going to launch a remote service in a neighboring town on Saturday nights. Like a little remote Saturday night service. Why Saturday night, though? Well, he confessed that he had a hard time competing in his church with Sunday morning football. He had a hard time getting people to come in the fall on Sunday mornings. And he also confessed he, too, would like to catch a few games. When you have this mentality from top down, what is church? What is worship? Except it's something you do when you have nothing better going on. But what about you? Ask yourself, why do you come to church? What's your reason for gathering with a bunch of other Christians on a Sunday morning? If you ask that question to a lot of people in the, in the world today, in the church today, I know so many would say, because I love the music. Wrong answer. Others would say, maybe the more righteous ones, they'd say, because I love the sermon. Also, wrong answer. Rather, you should come because you love your God who redeemed your life from the pit. And your soul is just delighted to sing his praises, to dwell on his word. You love Jesus, your Savior, who died on the cross, rose from the grave to pay the penalty for your sins, to give you new life. He died for his church. You love his church. You just want to be with his people. You come because you want to be with, your, be with God's people, lifting up God's name together. Yes, you do that through music. You do that through the sermon, yeah. But the focus of those things is not on you and not on your taste. It's on God. So even when your personal preferences are not all met, you can still worship. Get that huge point. Even when your personal preferences are not all met, you can still worship. And you will. Do you believe that? And will you practice that? Otherwise, beware the second trap a trap of personal preference. Having a unique taste is not wrong, but remember that God defines church, God defines worship, and he wants you participating in both as he sees fit with the right heart. Well, there's a lot more to say. We really are just scratching the surface with this huge issue surrounding these worship wars. We have yet to study what the Bible actually does say about music and worship what it really means to worship in spirit and truth, how instruments do fit in, and more. We'll, we'll get there in the weeks to come. But we needed to start by spending time understanding the real source of much of the conflict in the worship wars, what, what divides people. And having put these sources of conflict through a biblical filter, it's really going to straighten out our discussion as we go forward. It's really going to set us up for getting it right as we move on. Do you have strong traditions, strong personal preferences about worship music, that's okay. But understand, your traditions and preferences are not legitimate reasons to destroy the unity of the church in any way. There is a better way. There has to be a better way. There is a better way. 
to getting through these worship wars. We're going to find all about that way next time. Let's pray. Our God who, who sits enthroned in the heavens, the God of all creation, with a word you spoke and existence came into being. Look at the majesty of, of our God. You made all things. You made us to dwell on this earth. And even greater for us, you, you saved us. You remade us. You recreated us. You gave us new life. Lord, you're the source of our life. You're the source of our new life. You're, you're just our majestic God. I pray, I pray that sinks in today in our hearts that we come here to worship you, to, to behold you, and to lift up your name. You've created us as individuals. That's, that's a good thing. We can actually reflect your greatness through our individuality. But at the same time, Lord, we gather here not for us, but, but for you. Despite our differences, despite our diversity, we come together as one. That's what really shows the world that Jesus is Lord and Savior, that we really are different. Keep us free from prideful, selfish hearts, Lord. It's in all of us. We all have the flesh. It's all a part of us. But humble us. Humble us by what you've done for us through Jesus on the cross. For he laid aside his personal preference, per se, and he died for us that we would be saved. May we be humbled by this thought. And may we just come together as one. We, we want to lift up your name in praise. We want to get it right. And so we're going to submit to the word. We're going to submit to one another. Be with us, Lord. Guide us, correct us, strengthen us, that this may be a church that gets worship right. That's why we were made. That's what we will do for all eternity. We want to do that rightly now. So be with us, Lord. We thank you. We praise you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.